Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, Genesis and chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2. And we read together tonight from verse 15, uh, Genesis 2, 15, we read into chapter 3 and verse 8. Picking up our series in Genesis, um, we're going to go through to the end of chapter, we'll study all of chapter 3 tonight, but over the next few weeks, uh, we'll make our way towards the end of chapter 3 and then uh, leave our studies there for a little while, possibly resuming in the autumn or maybe not till next year, not quite sure yet. But uh, God willing, we'll get to the end of chapter 3 just to, at the beginning of the summer and then we'll pause in Genesis. Uh, you'll remember uh, over the last few weeks what we've been looking at, the first few chapters, foundational, crucial chapters of God's word to know and, and to understand uh, the, the fundamental truths of the gospel and of who God is and who we are and where our world has come from. It's all bound up here in Genesis chapters 1 to 3. And more recently, we've been looking at the creation of the man and the woman. We looked at their companionship and their marriage together in the Garden of Eden. And you remember also how we saw that um, we, maybe, we maybe have had faulty uh, notions of the Garden of Eden. Eden, we saw, it was really a region. It wasn't just a garden like some of us would have uh, in the, behind our houses. It's a huge region of the earth, Eden was, with all kinds of different trees with beautiful fruit. And then at the very center of Eden was this particular patch called the garden. And in the garden, these two trees that we read of in Genesis chapter 2. And so this beautiful paradise uh, where God has placed the man and the woman. And we just want to remind ourselves as we read in Genesis 2 of how God established things, how he set up the parameters of life in the garden for Adam and Eve. And so let's read together Genesis 2 and verse 15. And let's again hear God's word. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. 
But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. <coughs> then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Amen. We can keep your Bibles open there at Genesis chapter 3. And we st we're studying this evening verses 1 to 8. And we're thinking tonight about Satan, sin and shame. Satan, sin and shame. Louis Armstrong's 1967 song, What a Wonderful World, is one that we've probably all heard, whether we realize it or not. It's played quite frequently on TV adverts or in movies or on the radio uh, quite a lot. It's a beautiful song uh, because of both the lyrics and the singer's performance. And you maybe recognize some of the words of the song. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue and clouds of white, the bright blessed day, the dark sacred night. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Beautiful words, beautiful song. Interestingly though, the lyrics, or at least that portion of the lyrics, tend to focus on the natural world. Skies of blue, red roses, the night sky and so forth. And we do still see those things, of course, in our world. And yet we also see in our world today violence, greed, deceit, heartache of all kinds. Why is that? Why is a land with the beautiful sights of the Mourne Mountains, for example, or the north coast of Ulster, why is it also one stained by massacres in our history, like Ballymurphy or Kings Mill? Why is coronavirus in our world and cancer and car accidents? Why have we spent the last few weeks looking at shocking pictures in our nightly news of bombs blasting in Israel-Palestine? Why is our world both wonderful and awful? Well, it's all because of what happened in the beginning in the garden when Adam and Eve fell into sin for the first time. This is where it all went wrong. This is why deep down, you know that there's something wrong with you, just as there's something wrong with me and with all of us. Genesis 3 tells us where and how it all went wrong and why things continue to be such a mess in our world today. Let's think first of all this evening about the reality of Satan. The reality of Satan. Look at Genesis 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, wait a minute, people think, a talking snake? Are you serious? You can find plenty of people who find this utterly ridiculous. Some of them popular celebrities who have great fun on stage making jokes about this. 
Other people would say it's not psychologically healthy to believe this kind of thing. It's a sign of some kind of mental or emotional trauma to think that there's someone called Satan and that he became a snake in the very beginning. But friends, there is nothing ridiculous and certainly nothing funny about the reality that Satan exists. The devil exists. To believe that Satan exists is to believe that Jesus tells the truth because Jesus clearly believed in and took seriously the reality of Satan. And so you can't sit on the fence about this. If you're willing, to, if, you, if you believe in the reality and existence of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you believe that he, is, that he was and is perfect, the Son of God, then you have to believe what Jesus says. And Jesus tells the truth about Satan. Jesus spoke to Satan. You remember how straight after his baptism, Jesus was led into the wilderness and faced temptation from Satan, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. And after several run-ins with the devil, Jesus said in Matthew 4, verse 10, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So if it's crazy to believe in Satan, friends, then you have to call Jesus crazy and ignore everything else he said or did. But of course, Jesus isn't crazy because the devil does exist. Now, the Bible doesn't explain exactly why Satan chose to speak to our first parents through a snake. It's not clear whether this snake was simply controlled by Satan or whether Satan possessed it. But the Bible does make very clear elsewhere that this was Satan who led our first parents, Adam and Eve, into sin. We read the words of the Apostle John earlier, 1 John 3 verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And, and his choice of words there, the, from the beginning, could well be a hint back to what we read about in Genesis chapter 3. But where did Satan actually come from? He hasn't just always existed without any beginning. Only God has always existed. So where did Satan come from? Well, Scripture tells us that Satan was originally an angel. He was one of the spirit beings that God created to serve him in the spiritual realm. And just as he did with human beings, God made angels with freedom to choose to love and serve him. They weren't like programmed computers or robots. Scripture tells us, however, that several angels rebelled against God and they were punished as a result. The Bible calls these fallen angels demons and the leader of these demons is Satan. Jude verse 6 says, The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept, God has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So there's a hint there of the rebellion that took place amongst the angels. And similarly, Revelation 12 uh, describes Satan as a great dragon at war with the offspring of Eve. And there's a hint as well in Revelation 12 of Satan bringing down uh, a proportion of angels with him when he fell from grace. So whilst we don't know all the details, friends, we know that Satan is a fallen angel. He's an enemy of God. And he has his own followers, evil spirits, demons. 
And while Satan is not all-powerful or all-knowing, he is very cunning. And since he's been around a lot, lot longer than you and I, he's a dangerous enemy, our worst enemy, in fact. So we do believe that there is a spiritual realm, an unseen world, as well as our physical world, where there are God and angels and where there are Satan's, Satan and demons. We happen to live perhaps in a society where we don't see much evidence, uh, much explicit evidence of demon possession or of demons really controlling people to uh, a very violent and, and obvious degree. There are plenty of places in the world you could go where you would see evidence of that. And there have been missionaries, countless missionaries over the years, including missionaries sent out by the Reformed Presbyterian Church, who have confronted clear, strong demonic activity in other parts of the world. And we know, of course, from the Gospels that demonic activity picked up a lot during Jesus' ministry on the earth as Satan tried very forcefully uh, to confront and defeat the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 6 verse 12, he calls them cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The heavenly places there means the spirit world, a world that we don't see, but which has a huge influence and impact on the world that we do see. And so what we read here in Genesis 3 verse 1, friends, is that in the very beginning, Satan entered our physical world. Somehow using the snake, Satan came and tempted our first parents into sin. Of course, we need to realize that Satan and his demons still want to tempt us into sin every single day. If you're a Christian, you can't be possessed by a demon or by Satan himself, but you are in a daily war with Satan and demons. And your enemy wants to completely destroy you, your family, and your church. He takes particular pleasure, in fact, in destroying whole families. One preacher has rightly pointed out that the devil didn't even come and tempt Adam and Eve until they were married. He waited until there was a family established so that he could come and try and tear them apart. As I say, most people in our culture think Satan is a, as a cartoon character. It's been said many times, the devil's greatest trick has been to convince the world that he doesn't exist. And that's what most people around us try to tell themselves, he doesn't exist. And so Satan already has them where he wants them in a sense, and he'll let them go on indulging in whatever it is, Sexual sin, drunkenness, violence, plain old selfishness, corruption, as if those things aren't also spiritual acts with spiritual consequences and which ultimately ruin lives and ruin our world. So why is the world such an awful place? The first reason, friends, is because Satan is real. He exists. If you're a Christian, he can't totally destroy you because Jesus Christ has already defeated him on our behalf, but nonetheless, he remains a dangerous enemy. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. And so Peter goes on to say, Be watchful, be alert, be alert. We need to take Satan seriously. Without living in crippling fear of him, we need to realize that he wants to get in he wants to ruin our marriages, our families, and our witness. 
He wants to disrupt and destroy the fellowship of churches like ours. He wants to attack preachers and pastors either by leading us into sin that would disqualify us from our ministries or by discouraging us so much that we don't want to do it anymore. And to be on guard against Satan, friends, we need to be listening to, reading, studying God's word, the truth, so that we can repel the lies of Satan. And we need to be in a community of God's people under the word of God and encouraging each other and praying for each other and holding each other accountable. And we need to watch and pray as Jesus commanded his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane so that we don't fall into Satan's temptations. So why is our world in such mess and pain? Firstly, it's because Satan is real and we need to be ready to fight against him. So the reality of Satan. But secondly, we see in this passage the pattern of temptation. The pattern of temptation. How did Satan actually lead Adam and Eve into sin? Well, the passage says he was crafty, verse 1. Now that, the word there could also be translated shrewd. It's not necessarily a word that means that you're, you're acting in a wicked way. It's possible to be shrewd and crafty whilst not sinning. Uh, but certainly in this case, Satan was wickedly crafty and deceptive. He entices, he, he lures Adam and Eve into sin. And we always need to remember, of course, that it's not a sin to be tempted. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus himself was tempted but unless we are on our guard, temptation can quickly turn into sin, as it did here for Adam and Eve. And there's three things about the, the pattern, the, the way Satan went about this with our first parents that I want you to notice. First of all, they were tempted to question God's word. They were tempted to question God's word. Verse 1 tells us what Satan said to Eve. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. One preacher says, Satan begins by inviting Eve into a Bible study. Satan basically comes along and says to Eve, let's have a chat about God's word. Just goes to show, friends, not every Bible study is a good one to be a part of. Some people study the Bible not to learn what it means, but to twist what it means for their own desires. That's what Satan does here. He doesn't come wanting to understand God's word with Eve. He comes wanting to question and undermine and twist and change God's word. And of course, people are doing exactly the same thing all around us today. In fact, we shouldn't just point the finger at others. This, in, a, in essence, is what every temptation to sin is about. It's about Satan, even if we know God's word, trying to convince us that God's word can be interpreted a different way or it can be changed or we haven't quite understood it or there's a, an exemption clause for this or that. Does God's word really say that the only context for sexual intercourse is heterosexual marriage? Isn't it true that Jesus never said a word about homosexuality while he was on the earth? So how can you say that Jesus has any problem with it? Does God's word really say that one day in seven is to be kept holy and different from all the rest? <coughs> Does God's word really say that people will be punished forever in hell if they don't repent of sin? Is that not just a way of trying to control people and 
scare children into being good. Ask yourself, friends, which part of God's word, when we come across it, when we hear it spoken, when we read it for ourselves, does it tend to make us a bit uncomfortable? Do we tend to want to find a way around it or play it down? We need to be careful because that is ultimately where Satan will tempt us to question God's word. And so that's the first part of this pattern of temptation that we see here. We're tempted to question God's word. But the second part of the pattern is that we're tempted to doubt God's goodness. Having tempted Eve to question God's word, Satan also tempts her to doubt God's goodness. Notice how he misquotes God in verse 1. Did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice, friends, how Satan immediately tries to make God sound harsh and stingy. According to Satan, the first words God spoke to Adam and Eve were, You shall not. Were those actually the first words that God spoke to Adam? No. Genesis 2 verse 16. The Lord God commanded them saying, you may surely eat. You may surely eat. The, the way, what it means is eat all you like. Eat as much as you can. Enjoy it. Make use of the, the hundreds of thousands of trees with their beautiful fruit to enjoy. There was just one that they were forbidden to eat from. But you see, Satan wants us to doubt God's goodness that he wants us to believe that what God has provided isn't enough, that God's holding out on us. He's tight, he's stingy. And Eve answers the serpent, and that was a mistake in itself, of course. She shouldn't have answered him, and Adam shouldn't have let her answer him. But in her answer, Eve doesn't repeat God's commands correctly. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Notice she leaves out the word freely. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. That's a misquote of God's word. God didn't mention anything about touching the tree. And perhaps even in Eve's choice of words there, we, we see a bit of resentment in her about this. You know, he, even, you know he, he did, he's a bit tight. He did say you can't touch it. And Satan seeing Eve falling into his trap, he makes her doubt God's goodness even more. Verse 4. Verse 4. <coughs> you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, of course, there is some truth in what Satan says there. They, they are going to know things once they eat this fruit. Uh, and they're not going to die physically on the spot. As, well as, as Genesis shows us later, they, they live for a very long time physically. But there was something that broke spiritually. And physically, they did die eventually. And Satan doesn't tell her what she will lose by doing this. They lose their innocence. They lose the closeness and the trust of their relationship with God. Satan convinced them to doubt God's goodness. To question God's word, to doubt God's goodness. And then the last part of the pattern of temptation, he tempted them to challenge God's authority. He tempted to challenge God's authority. Look at verse 6. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, it's appealing to her on all these different levels, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was where? Man, where was Adam? Off working? Telling her no? Fighting off the snake? Man, where was Adam? She gave some to her husband who was with her, standing right there, saying nothing, doing nothing, sinning. Sometimes the protest that men make when things go wrong in our families or our work, we're tempted to say, well, what are you blaming me for? I didn't do anything. And sometimes, men, that's exactly the problem. Sometimes the worst we can do, like our father Adam, is nothing. Abdicate our responsibility. Stand back in silence. And what Satan does here is he turns upside down the structures of authority that God created. God had spoken specifically to the man concerning the tree and the fruit. When God said in chapter 2 verse 16, you may surely eat. That's a masculine singular you. God spoke specifically to the man. Adam was to then share God's word with his wife and together they were to obey God and rule over the creatures. Instead, what happens in chapter three? One of the creatures rules over the man and his wife. A creature speaks and who does he speak to? The woman. When the serpent says the word you, it's not masculine, singular, it's plural. Both of you, but he speaks to the woman. So the creature speaks to the woman. The woman takes the fruit and she gives it to her husband. So Satan completely flips around the, the rules and the order and the authority structures that God had created. Notice, by the way, that Satan never actually tells them to eat of the fruit. He never says take the fruit. That's how subtle he is. Instead, what he says is, you will be like God. You will be like God. You will finally be all you can be, to put it into modern language. Have all you can have. Do what you want to do. The sad irony, of course, friends, is that they were already like God. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And they already had everything they needed. But friends, this is the heart of every temptation. We are tempted to question God's word, to doubt God's goodness, and to ultimately try to seize God's authority, to turn the authority structures that God has created on their head. We're tempted to believe that we can decide for ourselves and that God isn't to be trusted and that we need to be at the center of things instead of God and his word. Whether it's the temptation to gossip, to share information, true or false, about someone or some confidential situation. The temptation to lust or sexual sin of other kinds. The temptation to be deceitful or greedy. The temptation to anger, friends. All these temptations are ultimately about us Wanting to take God's authority, doubt God's good goodness, question God's word. 
This is the pattern that sin and temptation follow. And this is what Satan will be trying to do first thing tomorrow, maybe even later on tonight in each of our lives. To doubt God's goodness, to question God's word, to seize God's authority. So we've seen the reality of Satan. We've seen the pattern of temptation. And thirdly and finally this evening, the shame of our sin. The shame of our sin. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths. The man and woman were physically, literally naked. And of course, in the context of marriage, that's not necessarily a sinful thing. But spiritually speaking, they have nowhere to hide their shame. They have nowhere to hide their shame. They realize all of a sudden the shame that is upon them as breakers and transgressors of God's word. We've all experienced that moment of realizing our shame, haven't we? We thought it would feel so good to tell that lie or lash out with that insult or put up a wall of silence. But what do we actually get out of it? Shame, embarrassment, separation from others and from God. And that's the other sad result of Adam and Eve's sin, not just the shame, but the separation that it causes. Look at verse 8. This is one of the most tragic verses in the Bible. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Friends, that's how it used to be. That God would come. Possibly this is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus himself. And he would just walk in the garden with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. But instead of walking with him, what do the man and his wife do? Verse 8, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So sadly ironic, isn't it? God had told them, you may surely eat of any of these beautiful trees from their lovely fruit. And instead, here's Adam and Eve hiding amongst these trees. Friends, sin separates us from the loving, welcoming presence of God. Just like sexual sin will separate partners in a marriage. Just like boys and girls will run and hide from mommy or daddy if they realize they've sinned against them in the home. Our sin keeps us at a distance from God. We, we feel it in our souls. We are no longer welcome in God's presence. We fear God's presence. The thought of being with him doesn't fill us with joy. It fills us with dread. Adam and Eve have sensed this need to cover up their shame. But they feel miserably to cover up their shame. Look at verse 7. It says, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The word there for loincloths could also be translated belts. Uh, the description suggests these coverings were barely coverings at all. They, they weren't sufficient. They didn't do the job. Friends, Adam and Eve couldn't get rid of their shame. They couldn't cover up their sin. And again, we can all identify with that, can't we? Boys and girls, have you ever broken something and tried to fix it before anyone found out? Or maybe you've taken something that mom and dad said you couldn't have and you've tried to make it look like you didn't take anything at all or someone else took it, not you. Adults can be just as silly when it comes to trying to cover up our sin. We can't 
cover up our sin. We can't remove our own shame. And yet something within all of us desperately tries to. This is what the Bible calls works righteousness. It's when we try to minimize our sin or cover up our sin or excuse our sin. Maybe we do that simply by trying to to do good things to make up for the wrong that we've done. We go to church. We put up a good show. We try to show everyone that we're living a pretty good and respectable and well-meaning life. And anyway, compared to other people, we're certainly not that bad. And we hope that all of that somehow on on the cosmic scales that God has, that somehow the good outweighs the bad. Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of our efforts to make ourselves seem not so bad. It's like offering to God a pile of filthy rags. In fact, Isaiah 64 really is saying that it's soiled underwear. It doesn't make us any better. In fact, it only emphasizes how wicked we are. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Paul said in Romans. We're all descendants of Adam and Eve. Their sin is our sin. Their record is our record. Their separation from God is our separation from God. And if that were the end of the story, what an awful story it would be. But there is a little bit more to say. I called the sermon Satan, Sin and Shame. Maybe I should have added a fourth word. Satan, Sin, Shame and Saviour. Because there is one person who has no shame of his own to cover up and who therefore is able to cover over all of our sin with his perfect righteousness. His name, of course, is Jesus. And we'll see next time a beautiful promise about Jesus right here in Genesis 3. But listen to the words of Paul in Colossians 2.14. Here's how Paul describes what Jesus achieved for us by his death on the cross. <coughs> Colossians 2.14 Paul says that God and Jesus cancelled, quote, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, Paul says. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. The rulers and authorities, who is that? Satan and demons. The ones who will try to accuse you and I that our sin can't be covered over. The ones who want us to wallow in our shame and for our shame to ultimately condemn us. Paul says, no, Jesus disarmed them, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. When Jesus went to the cross, friends, he took a record of perfect righteousness there with him. He himself never sinned. And then he took our record of shame and sin on himself. And on the cross, Jesus was mocked and shamed and cast out from the welcoming, loving presence of God. You remember the cry that he offered up? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you ashamed of me? Why why is this separation here? He endured the wrath and holy anger of God against our sin. And in so doing, Jesus has removed our shame. So that instead of standing before God with our pathetic little fig leaves and rags, God sees us standing in robes of righteousness. He sees us standing free of the shame and disgrace of sin, covered in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ.
Sin separates us from God. It leaves us naked, ashamed, and exposed before a holy God who hates our sin. But the Lord Jesus Christ covers over our sin and reconciles us with God and welcomes us to be with God. That's why in one of the letters that we've studied in the book of Revelation, Jesus promises his people that they will wear garments of white and walk with him. That which was lost in the garden, the, the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, we lost that. Jesus says we're going to get that back. And so what about you this evening, dear friend? Do you stand before God at a distance, naked and ashamed? Or do you stand in his presence covered and righteous? How do we know which it is for us? Well, friends, without saying it in so many words, Satan pointed Eve to the fruit and essentially he was goading her and tempting her, take and eat with empty promises and half-truths. Jesus Christ, who not only tells the truth, but is the truth, he says to us, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Take, drink this cup is the new covenant in my blood. We get rid of our sin and the shame that comes with it by trusting in the sacrificed body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we are more than conquerors because of his love for us. So friends, when Satan comes and hisses at you this week, trying to twist God's word, trying to get you to doubt God's goodness. Remember that he is a defeated enemy. Remember that Christ has conquered Satan, sin and death on our behalf. Remember that those who conquer will walk with God in a beautiful new garden and in robes of white with all of our sin covered over. Amen. Let's stand again as we meet the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, if you were to mark iniquity, who could stand before you? None of us could, because our sin leaves us ashamed and naked and exposed to your wrath. It separates us from your presence. Left unattended, it will leave us with no desire for your presence whatsoever. And we will be destined for the punishment that our sin deserves, the hell of being cast out from you, cut off from you, left with the emptiness and the misery that sin ultimately brings. Lord God, we pray that that would not be the case for anyone here this evening. We pray, Lord God, that all of our transgressions would be covered over by the Lord Jesus Christ, he who gave his body and blood for us, the one who had a perfect record of righteousness and who offered it up so that our record could be covered over by his goodness and grace. Father, help us this week. Deliver us, we pray, from temptation and from the evil one. Lord, may he not get the victory over us. May he not get in and ruin our families, ruin our witness, ruin our church. Father, we pray that we will have the victory over him day and daily, that we will not get into a practice of sinning, but that increasingly, Lord, we would have the victory over Satan and sin. We ask these things in and through our Savior, Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>